I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. And I want to invite you to stand with me as we read. This is the very word of God. We read this like no other book. This word is true and authoritative and sufficient for our lives. This is the word of the Lord. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold, jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. Then he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put out your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, Please, send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, 
Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth. And you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Let's pray. Father, just as you appeared to Moses in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush that was not consumed in order to reveal yourself to him and through him to the people of Israel and to Egypt and to all the earth that all might know that you are the Lord. So you have spoken to us. You have preserved for us in your great power and goodness. You have preserved this record so that we might know you as the Lord, so that we too would trust you and believe in you. And so we pray that through the working of your word and your spirit this morning, you would engender faith in your people in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. An adult male giraffe can grow up to about 18 feet tall and weigh up to 4,200 pounds. Would you say a giraffe is big or small? Probably your default answer is to say big, right? Huge even. And that's because we evaluate numbers like that relative to our own height and our own weight. I mean, that's almost three times as tall as Matt Groon. More than three times as tall as me. However, if you were to put a giraffe next to, say, a 98-foot-long blue whale, 18 feet doesn't seem very significant at all. Size is relative. The, the earth is large compared to a basketball and pretty small compared to the sun. The sun is big compared to the earth, and it's really small compared to Canis Majoris, a star that is three billion times that of the sun in volume. What about the problems in your life? Would you say those are big or small? It depends, right? If you're tracking with me. It depends. Compared to what? Compared to whom? In the fight of faith, you are always facing two options. You will either evaluate your problems and your circumstances in reference to yourself, your abilities, your capacity, your energy, your wisdom, your resources, which is why frequently we find our problems to be quite large because we are so aware of our own limitations and weaknesses. Or you will evaluate your problems in light of who God is and what God says. So God appears to Moses in a flame of fire, in the midst of a bush that is not consumed, and he comes speaking promises, great promises, glorious promises, precious promises. He says things like, I will be with you. I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. I will stretch out my hand. I will give this people favor. Those are staggering promises to which Moses responded with questions and objections and unbelief. 
culminating in flat-out refusal. You catch that in chapter 4, verse 13? He says, please, send someone else. Literally in the Hebrew, it says, send whoever you want, meaning anybody but me. I'm not doing it. The promises of God would fall flat on Moses until he came to see God as stronger, greater than Pharaoh and Egypt, than himself and his weaknesses and his limitations. So what is it for you? What are the specific circumstances that overwhelm you and provoke unbelief in you? And you know, you know those attitudes of unbelief, right? You know what unbelief feels like. It, it's that fear and worry and anxiety and despair and laziness and manifests in all kinds of ways. It, it might be your singleness or your chronic marriage conflict. It might be your career setbacks, your vocational frustrations. It could be loss, any size loss, right? Just change of plans, loss of dreams, death of a loved one could be infertility, family dysfunction. It could just be the chaos in the culture around us. All kinds of circumstances and situations can provoke in us unbelief. Whatever the issues are for you, do your fears and worries ever feel more real? More real, more powerful than the promises of God. I know you know what that feels like. The promises of God can just land flat, right? You hear them, yep, that God promises, but I don't feel any better. I don't feel any different, Scott Hubbard writes. When the promises of God seem powerless to quiet our fears, soothe our grief, lift our worries, or motivate our obedience, we need to do more than simply hear his promises again. We need to behold the God who gives them. The promises of God will not function in you so long as you see your problems as greater than God. No amount of reading and rereading and reciting and re-reciting the promises of God is going to make up for a deficient view of God himself. Because the power of a promise is not in the greatness of the claim that's made. Anybody can make an empty promise, right? Anybody can talk big. The power of the promise is not in how big the thing is that's promised. It's in how trustworthy and true and powerful and resourceful the one making the promise is. That's why banks want to see pay stubs and credit history and bank account balances. Anybody can make big promises. But in order for God's promises to function in your life, you have to know not only what he promises, but who he is. And you have to be convinced that he's greater. And the purpose of this text, Exodus 3, 16 through 4, 17, is to cause you to behold God as greater. So that his promises will function in your life. So that they will quiet your fears and soothe your grief and lift your worry and motivate your obedience. That happens when you see God as Great. Everything God reveals about himself at the burning bush, everything he says, everything he does is meant to engender faith in the God who is greater. God is greater than powerful enemies. God is greater than impossible obstacles. God is even greater than our sin of unbelief. 
That's my outline here. God is greater than powerful enemies, greater than impossible obstacles, and greater than sinful unbelief. First, God is greater than powerful enemies. There's a reason that the Hebrews were enslaved in Egypt for 430 years. Egypt was the world superpower, the most mighty nation on earth with a mighty king and a mighty army. Remember Exodus 1? So the Egyptians ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. They made their lives bitter with hard service. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Egypt is powerful. And with all of that might and authority, they have oppressed Israel. And one does not simply walk out of Egypt. And yet that's exactly what God told Moses to do. Go, gather the elders of Israel, and then go to the king of Egypt and say to him, please, let us go. I mean, we're not trying to pile on Moses here. I understand why he had his doubts. Please let us go. The God of our fathers appeared to us, and he wants us to worship him. Now, God could have sent Moses to appear before the king of Egypt with an oracle of judgment against Egypt as a prophet. Go and declare to him, Egypt has violated my moral law. They have committed all of these humanitarian abuses and grievances, human rights violations. No, instead, what does God make the central issue? Worship. That's on purpose. Worship is the whole point of the book of Exodus. It's not just about how God brings his people out of slavery. It's about how he brings them into relationship with himself. In fact, the exodus from Egypt is going to be over by chapter 15, but the rest of the book, all the way through chapter 40, is about right worship of God. And from the beginning, God frames the issue as a matter of worship. By confronting Pharaoh with this request to leave and worship God, God makes it personal between himself and Pharaoh. The conflict is not between Israel and Egypt, it's between God and Pharaoh. And whatever other concerns Pharaoh might cite, you know, well, what about the economic impact of letting a couple million slaves go free? What about the national security concerns that we have? The, the real issue here is glory. Will Pharaoh acknowledge God's right to be worshipped by his people? If not, he's setting himself up against God himself. And we don't have to wait for Moses to return to Egypt to find out what the result will be because God gives Moses a plot summary right here in chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So what's God going to do about it? I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. When God tells Moses, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt, he is issuing a direct challenge to Pharaoh and asserting his own supremacy over the mightiest nation on earth. That, that's because, you see, the pharaohs of Egypt, one of their titles, one of the ways that they're frequently referred to throughout Egyptian history is the Lord of the Strong Arm. That's incredible. The Lord of the strong arm. And do you know the most common way that Pharaoh is depicted in Egyptian art? Let, let me read this description to you, this quote. One of the most recognizable scenes in the iconography of ancient Egypt is the image of the king ritualistically slaying the enemies of Egypt. It might very well be the longest lasting image in Egyptian culture. 
these scenes can be found in every period of Egypt's history. A typical smiting scene depicts the king wielding a mace with one hand while restraining one or more enemies with the other, and the king is shown leaning forward over his enemies, one heel raised off the ground, and in the last moment before striking the enemy in the head, the king is depicted much larger than his victim, stressing that he is the most important and powerful figure in the scene, and the enemies are shown totally overpowered, often on one knee, waiting to be slain. That is the iconic image of the Pharaoh, striking his enemies. It's no accident that God says here, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt. That is a claim of supremacy, that he is stronger than the Lord of the strong arm, and he will prove it by striking the one who strikes the nations. However, God prepares Moses. This is not going to be easy. He tells him, I know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. I, I think one reason that we often struggle to trust God's promises is because we're, we're just, we think, well, I'll just take the promise, believe it, and then I'm just waiting for God to push a button and like life just gets easier right away. That's not how God works. God works through processes. He writes stories. He writes the best stories. He writes stories that have villains and conflict and cliffhangers and climax. And he leads characters through adversity that builds faith and shapes virtue. And God's stories are always the best stories because he's the main character in those stories. The one who brings deliverance. The one who works for the good of his people. The one who gets all of the glory. Chapter 3, verse 20. I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. God spoke in this way to Moses in advance. Why? Why does God tell Moses this? Because he wants Moses to know that he's greater than Pharaoh. It doesn't matter what God promises if Moses isn't convinced that God is mightier than Pharaoh. God wants you to know that he is stronger, that he is greater than all the cosmic forces of evil in the spiritual realms, and he is stronger than all those who rebel against him, suppress his truth, break his commands. When people sin against you, it, people can seem massively powerful and invincible when they do evil. Like they're just going to get away with it until you see them in comparison to God. Second, God is greater than impossible obstacles. Not only did Moses face this powerful enemy in Egypt, he faced impossible circumstances. Just think, what would it take logistically to lead two million or so people out of Egypt? It, these are enslaved and impoverished people, by the way. To lead them into the desert on a journey for who knows how long. Have you ever gone on a family vacation? You know what it takes just to get yourself out the door. And if you have anybody else you're responsible for, you should have seen our house the week before we took a road trip to Florida. There's stuff all over the place, packing it into containers and stuff, loading up our van, packed to the gills, always thinking, what are we forgetting? Probably something very important. One does not simply walk out of Egypt into the desert without food and clothes and provisions. Follow me, everybody. How are we going to survive? 
The logistical challenges were massive compared to Moses. No wonder Moses has questions. He does not have the resources for this task. But again, God speaks to this need in advance and promises that he will provide. Look at chapter 3, 21 and 22. I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. God is going to provide in the most miraculous way. Each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. I mean, when one nation conquers another nation, it's just common that the victorious nation plunders the defeated nation. That means what God is telling Moses here is not simply you're going to sneak out of there like slaves escaping and running away. No, you're going to plunder them like a victorious conquering army. You're going to win and take everything they have and then go. This is a promise of military victory, except it doesn't say your men will grab their swords and point them, you know, threaten to cut off their heads and take all of their stuff. No, your women are just going to ask. And then they're going to take everything and they're going to put it on your your little kids and your kids are going to walk out with it. If that is not a display of God's power to provide for his people, who could have foreseen? Who would have ever imagined I, I think I know how God's going to provide for us in this case. Nobody would have ever thought of this. And this was a fulfillment of an even older promise. We keep referring to Genesis 15, 14, when God promised to Abraham. There's a reason for that, because God keeps his word, and he proves his faithfulness specifically. God told Abraham hundreds of years before, I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. I'm going to prosper them through the very nation that oppressed them and provide for them all that they need. You know that weight of fear and worry that can just crush you when you're facing whatever it may be, financial hardship, some life-changing decision that's looming over you, when you feel stuck and you see no way out, Do you, in those moments, see God as greater than your circumstances? Even if you can't see how he will provide in those moments. Besides the logistics of leading Israel, Moses had his own personal limitations. In chapter 4, verse 10, he objects to God, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. There are all sorts of interpretations here. What exactly is Moses talking about? Maybe he's just making up an excuse. Maybe he wasn't very fluent in Hebrew. Maybe he was kind of rusty there. Or maybe he was afraid of public speaking and just worried that if I get up in front of people, my voice is going to quiver and they're going to know I'm scared stiff. Maybe he had a real speech impediment. Maybe he was born with it or he had some injury that caused him something. The Greek version of the Old Testament implies that he stammered or stuttered. Whatever the issue was, Moses knew this task required speaking in public, speaking to Pharaoh, speaking to the people of Israel, and he was convinced he was disqualified because of this personal limitation. And yet, once again, how is he viewing his limitations? In reference to himself, not in reference to who God is. Remember earlier in chapter 3 when his first question was, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children out of Israel? What, What did God say? Turn it around. Not about who you are, but I will be with you. When Moses says here, but I can't speak, what does God say to him? 
Who made your mouth? Who made any man's mouth? Who makes anyone mute or deaf or seeing or blind? That changes everything. When you see your own personal limitations in light of the God who made you, who made you just the way that you are, all of your abilities and disabilities, all of your strengths and weaknesses, they are not a surprise to God. He made you the way he did on purpose. So what do you consider to be your limiting factors? And are you learning by God's grace to see those and interpret those in light of who God is? God can use you, limitations and all, to accomplish his purposes in such a way that he gets the glory. Whatever those limitations are, whether they are outside of you or inside of you, do you see them in light of God? Third, God is greater than sinful unbelief. How did Moses respond to these promises and assurances from God? Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Behold, they will not believe me. They will say, the Lord did not appear to you. This is classic projection. When when Moses says, the people of Israel are not going to believe me, what he means is, I don't believe you. He's projecting unbelief on them because... He's directly contradicting what God told him back in chapter 3, verse 18, and they, the elders of Israel, will listen to your voice. God already told them what's going to happen. And yet what felt bigger, what felt more real to Moses than the promise of God was his own past experience with the Hebrews. Last time he tried to help them, they rejected him. And scars from the past have a way of turning into wounds that become a lens through which we view the future. And yet God's purpose His purpose is to be trusted. He will win the faith of his people and he will do whatever is necessary to overcome even unbelief in order to secure the allegiance of his people. In response to Moses' concern that Israel would not believe, look how gracious God is to give Moses these signs. Signs that are meant to engender faith in Moses here in the moment and signs he tells him, go back and perform these again in front of the people so that they may believe. God turns Moses' staff into a snake and back again. You know what Pharaoh's scepter looked like? Had the head of a cobra at the top. Again, God is declaring, I'm, I'm stronger than that. He can put a decorative cobra on the top of his scepter. I can turn your staff into a real snake and back again. God covers Moses' hand with his flaky skin disease and back again. God promised to turn water from the Nile into blood. Each of those signs involves taking something good and useful and turning it into something deadly and destructive and back again, in the case of the first two. These signs show God's power to deliver from destruction and from death, and the purpose of them is to engender faith. That's Moses' concern. They're not going to believe me. So God says in verse 5, do this so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again in verse 8, if they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. And he doesn't say may like maybe, hopefully, we'll see. He means that this might be. Do this that they may believe. And all three signs confirm God has appeared to Moses. God intends to save his people. And through these displays of God's power, God himself is producing in Moses and the people of Israel genuine faith. I I find this to be the most hopeful part of the whole narrative. I mean, the fact that God is 
more powerful than evil people on earth, that's awesome. The fact that God can provide in impossible situations, that is comforting. But the fact that God is able to graciously overcome the sin of unbelief in our own hearts, to secure our worship, to make us his, that is glorious beyond words. Why do we struggle to trust God? Why, why do his promises land flat on us? Not because our problems are so big. Not because they're so overwhelming. Just because our own unbelief keeps us from seeing the greatness of the glory of God. So what we need most is to see God. And how do you see God when you can't see God? Unless he takes the initiative toward you. Moses' unbelief here reinforces the fact that God did not choose Moses because of how great Moses was. You're just the epitome of faith and strength and virtue and righteousness. I pick you. No, he chose Moses because of God. In chapter 4, verse 14 says, after this fifth objection and refusal, then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. This is how we know Moses was sinning. This is sinful unbelief, not just curiosity, not like Mary's question of faith when the angel appeared to her and she said, how can this be? I'm just a virgin. There's a way to ask questions from faith out of curiosity. Wow, Lord, amazing. I trust you. How are you going to do that? Moses is not asking questions like that. He's sinning against God and God's, God's anger is kindled against him. And even here, it just magnifies God's grace and his patience. Long before we're going to hear the formal declaration in chapter 34 that the Lord is a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger, we witness God being slow to anger with Moses. God patiently dealing with each question, each objection. God in his grace being persistent, not taking no for an answer. Sometimes people say things like, God is a gentleman and he will never you know, force his way. He'll just ask and just wait and leave it all in your court. No, that's not how God acts here. He's going to strike Egypt and Pharaoh will let them go. And when Moses says no, the answer is wrong. God has chosen him and has asserted his grace toward him. God, in his sovereign grace, always takes the initiative toward sinful people to overcome unbelief. So, do you believe God? That's because God made himself known to you. Do you love God? He first loved you. Do you desire him? It's because he chose you and he set his affection on you. Now, if, if you're tempted to think, I, I, I think this is a common response to a lot of people who read narratives like this, to, to read it and think, if only God would give me a sign like this. I want to give you a couple things to consider. First, th there's no indication in Scripture that, that God normally provides just personal, private signs to people upon their request. But God provides these public signs that validate the claims of those he's sent to communicate his message. Second, just consider the fact that in the text here, these signs do not remove the need for faith. Right? Moses is talking to a burning bush. <laughs> and we think, well, if I saw that, I would just have no questions and no doubts whatsoever. Moses proves that's not true. 
God performed these signs for Moses, and Moses still struggles to believe. You, you cannot ever get around the need for faith, which is what we often want. What we mean is, God, I don't want to have to trust you. I just want to be in control of it myself. Later, Israel would behold the plagues, and they'd walk through the Red Sea, and they'd hear God's voice thundering from the mountain, and they'd eat the manna from heaven, and they'd drink water from the rock, and they would still disbelieve and disobey God. There's no way getting around the need to trust God and take him at his word, ever. Third, God has clearly revealed himself to the world. He has not left himself without witness. That's what Acts 14, 7 says. He, God, did not leave himself without witness, for he has done good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. In this time of year, harvest time is all you need to know. God is unimaginably good. Look at how bountiful he is, how he provides for you. Romans 1, 20 says God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. But mostly and ultimately, God has made himself known in the person and work of Jesus. The, the parallels between Moses and Jesus are, are stunning. Acts 2.22, Peter says of Jesus, he was a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. Just like God did through Moses, only more and better. And the Gospels are eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus, including those signs that Jesus performed. And the Gospel writer John says clearly at the end of his account in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe. There is a written record of the signs that Jesus did so that you may believe in him, that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Think about the signs that God gave to Moses and that pattern. Something good, something useful, something necessary, a staff, a hand, water, cursed. Serpent echoes a snake in the garden. Skin disease is a sign of the curse in the law. Water turned into blood, a sign of death. And all of those reversed. Those signs point you to Jesus, the righteous one, who became sin for you and was cursed and cut off and died the death you deserve and then emerged triumphant over the grave. And it is through Jesus that God has made a way for your sin and your unbelief to be forgiven, swallowed up forever so you might enjoy God. So, are your problems big or small? It all depends. Do you know the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Do you know him as great and glorious? Do you trust his promises? Do you see him as good? Do you look at God through the lens of your problems or do you look at your problems through the light of who God is? The, the difference is enormous. It's the difference between anxiety and fear and despair on the one hand or humble hope and joyful optimism on the other. God has made himself known to you in Jesus so that you might know him as the one who is greater than all.